Durham issues scathing response to Sussman's filing for dismissal. Sussman's lie to General Counsel James Baker was directly material to the FBI's decision to open an investigation into the Alpha Bank hoax by Brian Cates. It was February 17th that former Perkins Coie lawyer Michael Sussman and his lawyers filed a motion to have the judge dismiss his indictment by special counsel John Durham. Sussman has been indicted by Durham for making a materially false statement that directly affected the FBI's decisions in investigating an alleged connection between the Donald J. Trump Organization and the Russian-based Alpha Bank. In that motion to dismiss, Sussman argued that his lying to then-FBI General Counsel James Baker about not working for any client was immaterial to the FBI's decision-making process as to whether or not the agency opened up an investigation into the Alpha Bank allegations. Today, March 4, 2022, Durham filed his response to the Sussman legal team's motion to dismiss and what a response it was. He makes short work of Sussman's claims, but before I dive into that, here's a background refresher on where the Sussman case currently stands. A lot of media heat and sound and fury was generated by Durham's February 11th filing, having revealed that former New Star Vice President Rodney Jaffe and several Georgia Tech researchers had been exploiting their privileged access to federal databases, including dedicated servers for the Executive Office of the President, in order to mine them for non-public information and data on Trump and several of his close associates. The filing goes on to allege that Joffe and company were taking this illegally mined data and handing it off to other members of the Hillary Clinton campaign team, as well as other campaign operatives at the firms of Perkins Coie and Fusion GPS. Durham's claims he will establish in court, should this case proceed to trial, that his highly illegal data mining activity began in July of 2016, which happens to be when Clinton gave her approval to have the dirty trick operation go forward, and continued on past the 2016 presidential election into the transition between the Obama and Trump administrations, and then on into the Trump presidency itself, once the real estate magnate had taken up residence inside the White House. In fact, Durham details in that explosive filing made on February 11th that when Sussman made his visit to Federal Agency 2, in February of 2017, he handed off an updated version of the Alpha Bank hoax that now included highly sensitive Executive Office of the President, EOP, data that the earlier FBI version of the hoax had not contained. The fake news media then leaped into spin mode as it attempted to explain that Durham's filing didn't say what it said. From PolitiFact, Rick Scott stated on February 15, 2022, in a statement to reporters, the latest with the Durham report is that the Clinton campaign actually spied on the President of the United States. Far from 
retreating from the claim that political operatives in the direct employ of the Clinton campaign team had been spying on the executive office of the president after Trump took up residence in the White House, Durham states it again in his latest filing. The first three pages of the filing. Government's opposition to defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment. The United States of America, by and through its attorney, special counsel John Durham, respectfully submits this opposition to the defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment for failure to state an offense, docket number 39, here and after a def moat. For reasons stated below, the government submits that the motion should be denied. Factual background. The defendant is charged in a one-count indictment with making a materially false statement to an FBI official in violation of Title 18 United States Code Section 1001. As set forth in the indictment on September 19, 2016, less than two months before the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the defendant, a lawyer at a large international law firm, Law Firm 1, that was then serving as counsel to the Clinton campaign, met with the FBI general counsel at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. The defendant provided the FBI general counsel with purported data and white papers that allegedly demonstrated a covert communications channel between the Trump Organization and a Russia-based bank, Russian Bank One. The indictment alleges that the defendant lied in that meeting, falsely stating to the general counsel that he was not providing the allegations to the FBI on behalf of any client. In fact, the defendant had assembled and conveyed the allegations to the FBI on behalf of at least two specific clients, including one, a technology executive, Tech Executive One, at a U.S.-based internet company, Internet Company One, and two, the Clinton campaign. The defendant's billing records reflect that the defendant repeatedly billed the Clinton campaign for his work on the Russian Bank One allegations. In compiling and disseminating these allegations, the defendant and tech executive One also had met and communicated with another law partner at law firm One, who was then serving as general counsel to the Clinton campaign, Campaign Lawyer One. The indictment also alleges that, beginning in approximately July 2016, Tech Executive One had worked with the defendant, the U.S. investigative firm, retained by law firm One on behalf of the Clinton campaign, numerous cyber researchers and employees at multiple internet companies to assemble the purported data and white papers. In connection with these efforts, Tech Executive One exploited his access to non-public and or proprietary internet data. Tech Executive One also enlisted the assistance of researchers at a U.S.-based university who were receiving and analyzing large amounts of internet data in connection with a pending federal government cybersecurity research contract. Tech Executive One tasked these researchers to mine internet data to establish an inference and narrative tying then-candidate Trump to Russia. In doing so, Tech Executive One indicated that he was seeking to please certain VIPs, referring to individuals at Law Firm One and the Clinton campaign. The government's evidence at trial will also establish that 
Among the internet data tech executive one and his associates exploited was domain name system, DNS, internet traffic pertaining to one, a particular healthcare provider, two, Trump Tower, three, Donald Trump's Central Park West apartment building, and four, the executive office of the President of the United States, EOP. The indictment further details that on February 9th, 2017, the defendant provided an updated set of allegations, including the Russian Bank One data and additional allegations relating to Trump, to a second agency of the U.S. government, Agency Two. The government's evidence at trial will establish that these additional allegations relied in part on the purported DNS traffic that Tech Executive One and others had assembled pertaining to Trump Tower, Donald Trump's New York City apartment building, the EOP, and the aforementioned healthcare provider. In his meeting with Agency Two, the defendant provided data which he claimed reflected purportedly suspicious DNS lookups by these entities of Internet Protocol IP addresses affiliated with a Russian mobile phone provider, Russian Phone Provider 1. The defendant further claimed that these lookups demonstrated that Trump and or his associates were using a type of Russian-made wireless phone in the vicinity of the White House and other locations. In his meeting with Agency 2 employees, the defendant also made a substantially similar false statement as he had made to the FBI General Counsel. In particular, the defendant asserted that he was not representing a particular client in conveying the above allegations. In truth, and in fact, the defendant was continuing to represent Tech Executive 1, a fact the defendant subsequently acknowledged under oath in December 2017, testimony before Congress without identifying the client by name. By February 9th, 2017, the Clinton campaign for all intents and purposes no longer existed. End quote. The bottom section of page two and the top section of page three of the new Durham filing discuss how Jaffe and company were illegally exploiting their federal database server access for partisan political purposes. This illegally collected data then turns up in the updated Alpha Bank hoax that Sussman hands off to the CIA on February 9th, 2017. Durham then demonstrates that part of the updated Alpha Bank hoax data that Sussman gave the CIA involved supposed evidence that Trump and his close associates were using Russian-made wireless phones in and around the White House. The obvious inference being that Trump and his White House team were getting their orders from the Kremlin over these particular Russian-made wireless phones. It would stretch credulity to believe that Sussman was claiming to the CIA that Trump and his team were getting their orders from Putin in close proximity to the White House over these Russian phones while Trump was yet merely a candidate for the presidency. Since he was making this handoff of the updated and revised Alpha Bank hoax to CIA officials on February 9th, about two weeks after Donald J. Trump's inauguration on January 20th, 2017, it does certainly look like Sussman is purporting to the federal agency that the Russian phone data was very recent and had been gathered since Trump's administration had taken office. Durham then discusses how Sussman, in making this approach to the CIA, once again told a material lie 
when he claimed he was not handing them this Alpha Bank hoax on behalf of any client, but that he was instead doing this on his own initiative. Durham proceeds to demonstrate the materiality of Sussman's lie by discussing the meticulous billing records that Sussman kept of all of his activity in helping to concoct and then disseminate the Alpha Bank hoax. The client Sussman was billing for all of this activity from July of 2016 all the way through his approach to the CIA in February of 2017 was in fact the Hillary Clinton campaign. Had Sussman disclosed this fact to the CIA or the FBI, it would have had a dramatic effect on the way those federal agencies handled the allegations he was proffering to them. The next few pages of the Durham filing. Quote, Legal Standard Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 12 permits a motion to dismiss the indictment based on a, quote, defect in the indictment or information including failure to state an offense, end quote. Fed R. Crim P. 12 B. 3 BV. In ruling on a motion to dismiss, the court must assume the truth of the indictment's factual allegations. United States v. Knowles. To sufficiently state an offense, an indictment need only, quote, inform the defendant of the nature of the accusation against him, end quote. United States v. Hill, 2001. An indictment must, quote, first contain the elements of the offense charged and fairly inform a defendant of the charge against which he must defend, and second, enable him to plead an acquittal or conviction in bar of future prosecutions for the same offense. Hamling v. United States, 1974. Quote, a pretrial motion to dismiss an indictment allows a district court to review the sufficiency of the government's pleadings, but it is not a permissible vehicle for addressing the sufficiency of the government's evidence. End quote. United States v. Mosquera Murillo, uh, 2015. As such, a dismissal of an indictment is granted only in unusual circumstances because a court's supervisory power to dismiss an indictment directly encroaches upon the fundamental role of the grand jury. United States v. Biestas, 2015. Argument. The defendant moves to dismiss the sole count of the indictment on the grounds that his alleged false statement to the FBI general counsel is immaterial as matter of law, and thus runs afoul of 18 U.S.C. section 1001A2's dictate that only, quote, materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statements or representations be criminalized. This argument is without merit. A. The indictment sufficiently alleges that the defendant's false statement was material. Although Section 1001 does not define materially, the Supreme Court has held that a materially false statement has, quote, a natural tendency to influence or be capable of influencing the decision of the decision-making body to which it was addressed, end quote. Cungus v. United States, 1988. However, as the Supreme Court explained in United States v. Godin, a statement need not actually influence an agency for it to be material. It need only have a natural tendency to influence or be capable of influencing an agency function or decision. 
515-US-506-509 from 1995. Quote, proof of actual reliance on the statement is not required. The government need only make a reasonable showing of its potential effects. United States v. Hansen, 1985. Distilled to its core, the defendant's argument is as follows. At the time of the defendant's alleged false statement, the only discrete decision to be made by the FBI was whether to initiate an investigation based on the information provided by the defendant. The defendant further claims that because his alleged false statement dealt only with his, quote, purported motivation for bringing the information to the FBI as opposed to the substance of the information, the false statement could not have influenced the FBI's decision whether to initiate an investigation. Defendant appears to argue that materiality should only be viewed through the lens of a specific agency decision at a discrete moment in time. In this case, whether the defendant's information was material to the FBI's decision to initiate an investigation. But courts have not construed the materiality element so narrowly. To the contrary, a false statement is material if it has, quote, a natural tendency to influence or is capable of influencing either a discrete decision or any other function of the agency to which it was addressed. United States v. Moore, 2010. In Moore, the D.C. Circuit joined its sister circuits in recognizing that a false statement is material if it has the capability to influence a discrete decision or any other function of the agency. C.E.G. United States v. Alemany Rivera, 1985. Test for materiality under 18 United States Code Section 1001 is whether the statement had the capacity to influence a government function. United States v. Lichtenstein, 1980, quote, false statement must simply have the capacity to impair or pervert the functioning of a government agency. United States v. White, 2001, materiality is a fairly low bar. The government must present at least some evidence showing how the false statement in question was capable of influencing federal functioning. United States v. Moore, 2006, statement is material if it, quote, has a natural tendency to influence or is capable of affecting a government function. United States v. Calhoun, 1996, it is enough if the statements had a natural tendency to influence or were capable of affecting or influencing government function. Accordingly, the materiality of a defendant's false statement survives long past the initiation of an investigation and encompasses the means and methods of an investigation. As discussed more fully below and as set forth in the indictment, the defendant's false statement was capable of influencing both the FBI's decision to initiate an investigation and its subsequent conduct of that investigation. In any event, the defendant's arguments on the materiality of his statement are also premature. The Supreme Court in Godin held that materiality is an essential element of Section 1001 that must be resolved by a jury. As Judge Sporkin reiterated in United States v. Cisneros, quote, The Supreme Court has held that materiality is an element of Section 1001 that must be determined by the jury. Deciding whether or not a statement is material requires the determination of at least two subsidiary questions of purely historical fact. A. What statement was made? And B. 
What decision was the agency trying to make? The ultimate question, C, whether the statement was material to the decision, requires applying the legal standard of materiality to these historical facts. The defendant asserts that while the jury is entitled to determine A and B, C should be decided by the judge as a matter of law. However, the Godin court explicitly rejected this argument by holding that C is a mixed question of law and fact that must be given to the jury to decide. Despite Godin, the defendant insists that the court should resolve the element of materiality as a matter of law if no reasonable juror could find an alleged falsehood in material, falsehood material in light of undisputed evidence of its immateriality. At this stage of the proceedings, before the government has had the opportunity to present its evidence at trial, the court cannot determine whether or not the government's case is sufficient to go to a jury. The proper time for the defendant to raise this claim is at trial. The, def end quote. the defendant cites to multiple cases where the Supreme Court and circuit courts have held that the false statements and misrepresentations at issue were immaterial as a matter of law. But critically, all of those cases involved post-conviction appeals or motions to vacate the conviction after the government presented its case at trial. Accordingly, none of these cases support the defendant's requested relief here. That is, that the court dismiss the indictment before trial because it fails to sufficiently allege that the defendant's false statement is material. What the cases do show is that courts have routinely declined to usurp the jury's role in making the determination on whether a false statement is material. United States v. Johnson, 2021. Even so, the cases cited by the defendant are clearly distinguishable. For example, in United States v. Kamek, the Tenth Circuit reversed a Section 1001 conviction upon finding that the statements at issue were not material because the relevant government decision-making body, the Patent and Trademark Office, never saw or reviewed the filing which contained them. As a result, the false statements were immaterial because it was impossible for any decision by the Patent and Trademark Office to be affected. In the Second Circuit's decision in United States v. Litvak, the court likewise reversed a jury trial conviction for false statements because the defendant's misstatements in residential mortgage-backed securities transactions were not capable of influencing any decisions of the U.S. Treasury. And in United States v. Nasserkaki, the court there held that one of two false statements contained in a defendant's application for refugee travel documents was immaterial because it related, quote, to an ancillary non-determinative fact. Specifically, the fact that the defendant had failed to inform the agency that he had submitted a prior application for the travel documents. In contrast, the defendant made his false statement directly to the FBI General Counsel on a matter that was anything but ancillary, namely, the existence, vel non, of attorney-client relationships that would have shed critical light on the origins at issue. B. The defendant's false statement was material to the FBI's initiation of the investigation. The defendant's false statement to the FBI General Counsel was plainly material because it misled the General Counsel about, among other things, the critical fact 
that the defendant was disseminating highly explosive allegations about a then-presidential candidate on behalf of two specific clients, one of which was the opposing presidential campaign. The defendant's efforts to mislead the FBI in this manner during the height of a presidential election season plainly could have influenced the FBI's decision-making in any number of ways. The defendant's core argument to the contrary rests on the flawed premise that the FBI's only relevant decision was binary in nature, i.e. whether or not to initiate an investigation. But defendant's assertion in this regard conveniently ignores the factual and practical realities of how the FBI initiates and conducts investigations. For example, the government expects that evidence at trial will prove that the FBI could have taken any number of steps prior to opening what it terms a full investigation, including but not limited to, conducting an assessment, opening a preliminary investigation, delaying a decision until after the election, or declining to investigate the matter altogether. Indeed, a host of factors play into the FBI's decision of whether and how to initiate an investigation, which include, among others, the source and origins of the information. Here, had the defendant truthfully informed the FBI general counsel that he was providing the information on behalf of one or more clients as opposed to merely acting as a good citizen, the FBI general counsel and other FBI personnel might have asked a multitude of additional questions material to the case initiation process. They might have asked, for example, whether the defendant's clients harbored any political biases or business motives that might cast doubt on the reliability of the information. End quote. Sussman and his lawyers are attempting to get U.S. District Court Judge Christopher Cooper to toss out Durham's indictment by urging him to rule himself that Sussman's lie to Baker is immaterial. There are serious problems with this request. Durham's prosecution team counters this by pointing out how Sussman's lie not only was material to the FBI's Alpha Bank investigation, but also how legal precedent has established that it's up to the jury to decide the issue of materiality after the state has made its case at trial. The special counsel's office points out that it was certainly a material fact that Sussman was hiding from Baker that he was there on behalf of not just one, but two clients, both of whom were paying him very well for the work he was doing on their behalf, work that certainly included the approach he was making to Baker. The Durham team quite ably points out that had Sussman fessed up to the fact that he was there on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign, this would indeed have influenced the subsequent FBI decision-making process about opening investigation into the Trump campaign based on the fake evidence he was proffering to the agency. Quote, the defendant's false statement to the FBI general counsel was plainly material because it misled the general counsel about, among other things, the critical fact that the defendant was disseminating highly explosive allegations about a then-presidential candidate on behalf of two specific clients, one of which was the opposing presidential campaign. The defendant's efforts to mislead the FBI in this manner during the height of a presidential election season plainly could have influenced the FBI's decision-making in any 
different number of ways. End quote. And later on in the filing, the Durham Special Counsel's Office returns to this point. Quote, Accordingly, and contrary to the defendant's argument that a tipster's motivation is insignificant and ancillary, the evidence at trial will demonstrate that a person's motivation in providing information to the FBI can be a highly material fact in determining whether and how the FBI opens an investigation and then conducts an investigation it has opened. And the evidence will show that it would have been all the more material here because the defendant was providing this information on behalf of the Clinton campaign less than two months prior to a hotly contested U.S. presidential election. In sum, the evidence will demonstrate that the defendant's false statement to the FBI general counsel had the capacity to influence the lawful function of the FBI as it related to the case initiation phase. End quote. Exactly as I expected he would, Durham argues that had Sussman informed the FBI's general counsel he was there on behalf of the other campaign in the presidential race, as well as on behalf of a cybersecurity expert the FBI was well acquainted with, that would have directly affected the FBI's decision about how to handle a prospective investigation into the allegations that Sussman was giving to them. Note how Durham points out that Rodney Jaffe didn't want Sussman using his name or revealing him as one of the clients who was paying Sussman to make this approach to the FBI and then to the CIA. Quote, For example, had the defendant truthfully disclosed the fact that he represented Tech Executive One, the FBI likely would have asked certain questions and conducted interviews during the investigation that would bear directly upon the information's reliability and or Tech Executive One's motivation in providing the information. Namely, as the defendant's motion reveals, Tech Executive One had a history of providing assistance to the FBI on cybersecurity matters, but decided in this instance to provide politically charged allegations anonymously through the defendant and a law firm that was then counsel to the Clinton campaign. Given Tech Executive One's history of assistance to law enforcement, it would be material for the FBI to learn of the defendant's lawyer-client relationship with Tech Executive One so that they could evaluate Tech Executive One's motivations. As an initial step, the FBI might have sought to interview Tech Executive One, and that, in turn, might have revealed further information about Tech Executive One's coordination with individuals tied to the Clinton campaign, his access to vast amounts of sensitive and or proprietary internet data, and his tasking of cyber researchers working on a pending federal cybersecurity contract. End quote. The special counsel's office then makes the very relevant point that in all the cases cited by the Sussman legal defense team where a lie to a federal agency was ruled to have been immaterial, all those rulings came after the state had already made its case at trial and that it was up to the jury to make the materiality determination. Quote, The defendant cites to multiple cases where the Supreme Court and circuit courts have held that the false statements and misrepresentations at issue were immaterial as a matter of law. But critically, all of those cases involved post-conviction appeals or motions to vacate the conviction after the government presented its case at trial. 
Accordingly, none of these cases support the defendant's requested relief here. That is, that the court dismiss the indictment before trial because it fails to sufficiently allege that the defendant's false statement is material. What the cases do show is that courts have routinely declined to usurp the jury's role in making the determination on whether a false statement is material. End quote. Durham then demonstrates that these after-the-fact rulings, once the government had presented it, all found the lie told by the defendant couldn't have affected the federal agency's decision-making because no decision-maker was aware of them. Quote, for example, in United States v. Kamek, the Tenth Circuit reversed a Section 1001 conviction upon finding that the statements at issue were not material because the relevant government decision-making body, the Patent and Trademark Office, never saw or reviewed the filing which contained them. As a result, the false statements were immaterial because it was impossible for any decision by the PTO to be affected. In the Second Circuit's decision in United States v. Litvak, the court likewise reversed a jury trial conviction for false statements because the defendant's misstatements in residential mortgage-backed securities transactions were not capable of influencing any decisions of the U.S. Treasury. And in United States v. Nasser Khaki, the court there held that one of two false statements contained in a defendant's application for refugee travel documents was immaterial because it related, quote, to ancillary non-determinative fact, specifically the fact that the defendant had failed to inform the agency that he had submitted a prior application for the travel documents, end quote. Durham demonstrates how those three examples of lies that never influenced any federal decision-making are in stark contrast to what Sussman did, stating his lie about not representing any client right to the FBI general counsel's face in his office at FBI headquarters. Quote, In contrast, the defendant made his false statement directly to the FBI general counsel on a matter that was anything but ancillary. Namely, the existence, vel non, of attorney-client relationships that would have shed critical light on the origins of the allegations at issue, end quote. Sussman and his legal team then try the novel defense that even though Sussman lied about not representing any clients paying him to go to the FBI and hand off the Alpha Bank hoax, the FBI and Baker knew Sussman represented the DNC, so they should have known, without Sussman having to volunteer it, that he was there for a politically motivated client, and if they didn't bother to ask him about that, well, too bad. Durham counters by pointing out that Baker knew Sussman worked for the DNC as a cybersecurity lawyer due to the recent, quote, hacking of the DNC emails. That did not mean that Baker should have guessed that Sussman was also a private operative for the Clinton campaign or Rodney Joffe. Quote, it was fine for me to lie to FBI General Counsel James Baker about how I was working for the Hillary Clinton campaign when I approached him with this Alpha Bank hoax because he already knew I was working for the DNC is one of the dumbest arguments Sussman could have made. Yet he tried it. Durham makes short work of it. Quote, in an effort to downplay the materiality of this false statement, the defendant asserts that the FBI General Counsel was aware that the defendant represented the DNC. But the government expects that evidence at trial will establish that the FBI General Counsel was aware 
that the defendant represented the DNC on cybersecurity matters arising from the Russian government's hack of its emails, not that he provided political advice or was participating in the Clinton campaign's opposition research efforts. Indeed, the defendant held himself out to the public as an experienced national security and cybersecurity lawyer, not an election lawyer or political consultant. Accordingly, when the defendant disclaimed any client relationships at his meeting with the FBI general counsel, this served to lull the general counsel into the mistaken yet highly material belief that the defendant lacked political motivations for his work, end quote. Based on my reading of the filing, it's hard to see how Judge Cooper could agree that Sussman's deliberate lie to Hyde, who was paying him to approach the FBI with this stupid hoax, was immaterial. I do not see him dismissing the indictment.